Good morning. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, but I'm still stuck on. Oh, what a Savior. Wonderful Jesus. Um, before I even start into what we're, what we're going to explore today, uh, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the elders here at the church, and uh, I want to follow Scripture's instructions in where it says to give honor to whom honor is due, and um, thank my family for, for coming, my mom and my dad. My dad's a pastor, and a whole family over here, and um, friends who've also come to join us, but specifically I'd like to give honor to Pastor Tony Hall, and um, just thank God for him being a servant pastor to myself and my family for few years now, and uh, also thank Shauna for lending him to us in light of the, of the nice, happy, active tribe that they have at their home. Um, I'm just very thankful for the halls, and, and they've just been such a blessing to our family. I was going to keep talking until someone started clapping, so... Somebody, somebody got the memo. Um, thank you, Tony. And, and it just does not go unnoticed, and we should acknowledge faithful service when we see it. Um, if you could open your Bibles and turn to Romans 12th chapter. We're going to read verses 9 through 21, and you can stand with me. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that it is sufficient. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has done a finished work that we all behold and marvel and worship uh, in light of God. We just thank you for your sovereign wisdom, your provision, your protection, all the things that you richly bless us with, God. I pray that you are with us this morning as we take a look at Holy Scripture and that we're able to see what you would have us to see, God. 
Holy Spirit, give us those eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts to treasure what you have for us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, we've got some instructions here that Paul's given us. Um, but before we get to exactly what we're being asked, um, kind, asked is a kind word for what's, what's being given here. These are actually commands. But before we get to what we're being asked to do here, uh, we should set up the foundation for why we should consider these things deeply. Now, in this letter, the book of Romans, Paul is establishing a, a framework, a massive framework of sin, righteousness, and salvation through Christ for this scattered church at Rome. Now, it's important to kind of focus on the fact that this is a scattered church. This church, um, historians and theologians have indicated that this church is likely made up of a lot of believers who first heard Peter's initial sermon in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And they scattered and they, they, they tried to find ways to come together and to congregate and to, and to remember and reflect and pursue this Christ, this Jesus that Peter was preaching. And they had no formal um, structure or, or church organization. So Paul's writing this letter to bring some things together and help them consider what this faith is that they've become a part of and what the implications are as a result of this belief. So he's establishing a framework for this scattered church in Rome. And if you read through chapters 1 through 12, you see that he's going through great lengths to expound upon some major, major topics. Starts out with man's depravity, and he goes into very, very intricate detail about what that means for us, our hopelessness apart from God. He goes into the Abrahamic covenant. He goes into the Mosaic law. He goes through the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace found in, in Jesus Christ. He speaks about the atonement. He speaks about the significance of Jesus dying for us and justification by faith. These are powerful, powerful things that we can, we can continue to meditate on even today. The theological presentation we see in these first 11 chapters is one of the most extensive and brilliant in all of Scripture. This is not a short book. The book of Romans goes into great detail to make sure we are assured and we are informed about this faith we treasure. Now, as we walk through these, these verses, we see that Paul is giving us some imperatives, some commands, and he's saying, do this. Let this be. And now, I, I want to be honest, when you read things like this, and we live in a very interesting society right now um, in terms of cultural interaction amongst people, I'll say for me, sometimes one of the most relaxing things I can hear is definitive instruction. That's one of the most relaxing things I can hear because we talk around what to do a lot of times. We talk around how we should consider 
acting and, and what we should do to respond. We, we don't really get to just tell me what to do. Very passive aggressive as a society so we can have arguments that may not sound like arguments. We can, we can harshly and sternly disagree on something that ends up working itself out in a way that just says, hey, I'm just not going to talk to you for 10 years. We're not going to come to the table and find out what these things are that we divide on and, and, and work through them and pursue the relationship as a result. But we're struggling to find definitives in our society today. This world of evasive conversation gives us little cause to arrive at fact. Now, maybe you're different. Maybe you look at stuff like this and you, and you hear people, you come from an authoritarian, authoritarian background and somebody telling you what to do seems a little bossy right now. Now, I don't want people just telling me what to do. I want you to understand me before you just tell me what to do. That's fine. There's provision for that. But as we see these verses here, we don't see Paul stuttering and stumbling over where we should arrive. Now, if you, if you feel burdened by this, then I want, I want us to, to consider what Paul is say, saying in light of community and fellowship. Because that's the context we have here. Think of this. Think of the witness we could be to others outside of the church if we are starting to see these scriptures as valid fact and fruit from the way that we live as Christians. Think of how people would think of the church if this was active. If this was an active reality constantly in the church. Now, we are really big on what it looks like to be committed to God. We spend a lot of time talking about his attributes and how holy and how great and how, how, how we should magnify his name and magnify the reality of who he is. And there's a lot of agreement probably among, of, among all of us of how we should be committed to this God and how we should worship and how we should serve him. But it seems like in common conversation, this commitment to God can somehow outweigh our commitment to God's people. Community with one another, fellowship with one another, the same sacrifice that we would say, we lay our lives down for you, Lord. Are we seeing that for one another? Are we seeing that true extension outside of who we are and really the flesh that we wrestle with to say, I'm going to give of myself in light of what this God has done for us and displayed for us. I'm going to give myself to you, person. Because we find a lot of people who are self-proclaimed non-church people. They found their, themselves saying, I'm done with church. I don't need to be a part of a committed body of fellowship. Now, I believe there are reasons for that. I believe we know how to platform and to talk about God in such a great and grand way. We know how to value theology and what facts about God tell us through Scripture. But in the way that we work it out amongst one another, we find ourselves wanting. 
We find ourselves lacking in the true essence of what it means to have this fellowship, being knitted together in this body illustration. I believe that it's, it's tough to see how that is really what we should be pursuing in light of this magnificent Savior that we worship. So the content here that you're seeing is not something that you should just tack on to what you see in the earlier chapters in Romans. But what we're seeing here is Paul exhorting this church to apply valuable, biblical, sound truth in the way that we act in light of what we have heard him already articulate before now. So it's in in light of God's grace. It's in light of God's mercies, as Paul articulates at the beginning of the chapter. In light of the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And now we want you to fulfill some commands. Now, we also have to admit that the Christian community in this society is struggling for definition in many ways, if we consider the public opinion. It seems like we're, we're more content to be defined by political support or a moral soundbite. When I believe that the definition of the church should weigh equally on the scales of what we believe and how we work it out and how we treat each other. So, as we take a look at these verses, let's examine ourselves. Starting at verse 9, we, we see that there's this internal focus within the, bio, the body. It starts off and it says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what's evil. Hold fast to what is good. Now, let love be genuine. We could just stay right there. Because... We, we know how to define love. We know how to, to, to say that this is the, the grand pursuit. There's been thousands of songs written about love. There's entire genres dedicated to this exploration of what love is. And it makes us feel good to listen to some of those truths and to consider how we act out love amongst one another. But Paul's going deeper here. He's saying, let it be genuine. The way that that is to be interpreted is is for it to be sincere and without hypocrisy. So there's this, there's a, there's a deeper level that he's submerging into the caverns of our hearts to say, look, this has to be real. This has to be something so authentic. It cannot be questioned. It cannot be questioned. Its authenticity is evident in and of itself. Let that, that love that you say that you have for God be genuine in the way you work it out amongst one another. He goes on to say, abhor what is evil. Now that word abhor is, is an interesting word. It essentially means to have a horror of what is evil. Hold fast. Cling to what is good. In the postmodern society we live in, it's, it's, a, it's really easy to get into the philosophical tensions of good and evil. What is actually good? What is actually evil? Thank God we have the word of God to give us those clear distinctions. Now, it seems like Paul's asking us to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good as two things, but it's actually one thing. By clinging to what is good, you abhor what is evil. 
clinging to the goodness of God, the definition of what God says is good. The fruit of that is to have a horror of things that are evil, have a horror of things that God says are sin, or God says are destructive, that God says are completely devoid of his glory. Jesus says in Matthew 19 that no one is good but God alone. And we see this in stark contrast to Romans chapter 3 where Paul says that no one is good. There's no one who does good. The Lord is good. His word is good. Read Psalm 119, a few verses in, you see there is, a, there is an ex, there's an exclamation of the law being good, the word being good, God being good. There's this worshipful response to the goodness of God. Verse 10 goes on, says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, for some folks, affection breeds awkwardness. You know, I'm not naturally affectionate. You may not catch Liz and I skipping through the park. (laughs) Skipping through the meadow, high-fiving each other at the top of the hill. But trust me, I love her with all my heart. This affection that he's, he's talking about is, is not something that we have to conjure up in our own selves and say we're more inclined to display affection like some ideal expression of affection. If you can with me, just imagine the times of the early church before we got to denominations and we got to, to biblical convictions, just deciding and defining which way you're going to sway in a, in a certain type of preference. Remember the early church, and they all come together in this full extent of joy in responding to what Peter is preaching. And it's almost like in this this community of faith, they're already in opposition to the general culture of religious thought. And, And it's like when you find someone who believes as you do, the affection becomes instant. You believe in this Jesus? Let me tell you what he did for me. You believe in this Jesus? I remember when Peter was preaching and something, something began to resonate within me. And as you see this brother or this sister that you meet in common public, you know, discourse and, and you begin to talk about how, how this is real and this, this has joined you together, there's an affection you immediately have as if you've met a long lost family member. And so we've gotten complicated now. We've gotten so extensive in our presentation of the faith that we haven't even taken time in many cases to sit down and hear one another's story of how we've come to Jesus. We've got precursors. We've got all kind of qualifiers that we've got to hear first before I can truly say that you're my brother or my sister. But if I sit down and I listen to you articulate about how you knew you were lost in sin and somebody just sang a hymn and the tears just started to pour out of your eyes because you knew that something about that was true and it was informing the very fiber of your being. And you know that when you hear that story, it is your story. That's the affection that Paul's saying that you must have towards one another. 
it starts there. It doesn't start with our list of qualifiers, which will be cast into nothingness once we see the glory of Jesus and all he is. As we rejoice together with no question, because he is worthy and those who have called him holy and true will celebrate together. Love one another with that brotherly, sisterly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I do not know what Tony will do to outdo the honor I showed him at the beginning of my sermon. (laughs) But I'm looking forward to it. Uh, this outdoing one another in showing honor. I don't know about you ladies, but this is how I've experienced it, is uh, sitting together with brothers in Christ for lunch, where there's the rush for the check. Uh, Brother, I got it. No, I've got it. No, I've got it. Well, I've got to use the restroom. I'll be right back. We'll finish this discussion. Get back from the restroom, they're already at the counter paying. And I'm like, well, I, I lost, you know. So there's this competitive, outdo, outdo. No, it's just, it, it's an acknowledgement of I love you and I just want to show that love because of what God has done in you and what God has done in me. I'm so thankful for what God has done and I just want to extend that love to you. There's no score sheet here. There's just genuine affection for one another. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Zeal. I don't know if you've heard this, but there's this myth out there that zeal is only for the youth. When I've come to Cornerstone and I've heard some testimonies and some exhortations from people older than me of new adventures that they're pursuing beyond their youth. This isn't relegated to the energy that you have and how you feel in your body. This is an awakening to what God is calling you to do, even now. It's such an encouragement to hear someone older than me talk about how God has excited them again to do something new. Because so often you hear people burn out on just the, the basics of theology and then they're just, they're basically just cynical and sitting in a rocking chair and saying, well, you know, God's just going to judge us all anyway. But when I hear somebody who's been renewed in their mind again and they go and do something just absolutely ridiculous in terms of society's standards of retirement and comfort. And they say, you know what, there's something else that God's calling me to do. And to my dying breath, I am going to seek that thing out. I am going to pursue everything that God has in front of me. I'm going to deny myself in a fervent, zealous pursuit of the glory of God. That is encouraging to a young man like me. I need to see stuff like that. I need to see those go before me in a true pursuit of what God has for them. It says be fervent in spirit. So there's just not this exciting element to just doing gospel-informed missions. There is something that needs to happen that Paul already has articulated in previous chapters and at the beginning of this chapter that we must be transformed in the renewal of our minds. 
What we're asking for, for these people to do that Paul is writing to, we're not just asking them to just turn into excited marvels about Christ who want to go out there and just be excited. We're asking for a supernatural work to be done in their minds and in their hearts that will cause them to stand up and say, I'm no longer dead to these sins. My life is wholly sacrificed to God. So the spirit has to inform this zeal. This is the, the passage that we get this idea of being fervent in the spirit or, or being zealous. This is the, the passage that we get the whole being on fire for God context. To be fervent is to boil or to be hot. And this passion for Christ or this on fire for God nature is something that only the spirit can craft in us. Serve the Lord. This zeal, this transformative work in our hearts gives us an idea of what it means to do menial activities ablaze with a passion for Christ. And if it's beginning to sound a little unrealistic for you guys, good. Because that means we got to go back to the well. It means we got to go back to the altar and the throne of God in our own devotional time and say, God, what is lacking in me? Because I need you to awaken whatever you have for me to do in order for me to understand this text more fully. When we become overwhelmed by the word of God, then that means we have to go to a God who overwhelms our psyche, our conscience, our ability to see what is possible. And then we stand up. And we say it is because of the grace of God we're able to take another step forward. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. That's an entire sermon. I'm not going to even go all the way with that. We can spend entire days and weeks contrasting joy and hope with depression and apathy in our society. But he tells us rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. He already gives us an extensive picture of that in Romans chapter 5. Be constant in prayer. The Greek says there to be steadfastly attentive to, to persevere and to not faint in prayer. It's interesting how it becomes so insufficient to tell people to pray because it seems like they already did that command. I already did that. Be steadfast. Be attentive into prayer. Persevere and don't faint. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. There was an extensive need for lodging at that time. So Paul's speaking to needs that have been already articulated. Give somebody a place to stay. And let me just say, as a believer who's been a part of the community of faith for some time now, it's such a blessing to be a benefactor of that hospitality. When someone has shown you that true affectionate love and given hospitality to you in a way that you could have never asked for, and yet they extend it to you, and it's just like, wow. It's almost like you conceive something of God's great love and provision for you personally. So he encourages us to pursue that hospitality. Now, the verses that follow 
Um, they include instructions to the body, but they extend outside the body as well. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Bless those who persecute you. <laughs> How radical it is to seek the well-being of those who have offended you. To seek the well-being of those who have hurt you. That's not natural. Natural is revenge. Natural is the movie industry where we watch somebody go on a rampage and kill everybody who hurt their family. We want that. Vindication. But God's saying, seek the well-being of those who hurt you. Seek the well-being of those who put burdens on your back. We can't do that. And praise God, because we must go to the one who can do that in us and see that fruit in action. What an encouragement that really is to have that transforming work going on inside of us. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, those are, that's a great command to have, but to really, really appreciate what's being said here, you have to know somebody to rejoice with them and to weep with them. There's these general applications of, hey, I invited you to my wedding. Come rejoice with me. Really, do you know the process, the mental strain it takes for you to just think, oh, man, I got to go to this wedding. (laughs) I told him I'd be there, and I'd be there for the reception, and I love him, so I'm going to be there. And honestly, that's where a lot of us get. Now, they could be close to you, and you say, oh, of course. But I've been a groomsman 13 times. And I love you, man, but my God, can we go home? (laughs) Laughter means that I'm being honest. And some other people feel the same way. But when you get to know someone and and they experience something worth rejoicing in, you truly can rejoice with them. You can be happy. You can celebrate with them. It's It's not something you have to conjure up. You're standing alongside of them, cheering them on like, I remember when it wasn't this way. And now you're rejoicing. And I'm with you. I love the fact that you're happy because I've been praying with you. I've been standing with you. I, we've been going through this thing together. we both got some of the same scars. Man, I'm rejoicing with you. And on the other side of things, that closeness has been developed where you're weeping with them. You're, you're, you're bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. You understand what it means to be overcome with the sadness that they are overcome with because you've been with them together. And you understand what that truly means for them to weep and to mourn. Live in harmony. Do not be a haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Associating with the lowly is not a, socially, a socioeconomic term where you're able to look down on somebody who has a lesser standing than you. But it actually means associate with somebody who thinks of themselves in a way where they know they have received grace. They are actually humble. They come to you and present themselves humbly because they are not high and wise in their own sights. They know that they depend on this mercy that we all depend on. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all, to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is impossible. But all things are possible with Christ. We need to feel the weight of impossibility as humanity so that we can more properly articulate our dependence upon this God. Because the more we are rightly dependent on him, the more we'll see these fruits start to spring up in us. The more that we are rightly dependent on God, the more that we'll begin to see. And we probably have already seen testimonies of these things come out. But we come worshipfully before God and we say, God, we need you. We need this mercy to spring up in us a new way to live in this world. These radical responses are not our natural inclinations. And once again, these aren't added requirements. This is the outworking of God's grace. It can seem burdensome to just talk about these, in, these imperatives here without thinking about the grace of God. These are characteristics as much as they are commands. These are characteristics just as much as they are commands. Paul's saying at the beginning of this chapter, present your bodies as living sacrifices. But do that in light of the mercies of God. Be transformed by a renewed mind, but do that in light of his exhaustible grace. This is what we do because of who we are, and this is who we are because of what he has done. The narrative starts where the radical depravity of man our rebellion against God is articulated in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we see the judgment of God. And then we say, we say, man, how can we even find our way in the midst of all of this? We have to remember that it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Chapter 3, he goes through and says, nobody's righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter 4, he goes through the Abrahamic covenant and clarifies it. says that we are justified by faith, not just by the fatherhood of Abraham and his righteousness, but the faith that Abraham displayed. In chapter 5, he goes into being justified by faith, what that actually means. The fact that we have access to God through faith and we can endure sufferings. The, The love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit he's given us. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous man, but Christ died for sinners. He died for people who did not deserve it. He goes through this narrative and continues into chapter 6 where he talks about how this grace that he gives us is not a, an opportunity for us to sin or an opportunity for us to disregard God's holiness, but is an absolute reason for us to pursue him more deeply. Chapter 7, he talks about how we wrestle with this flesh, this sin nature that wars against our very members. And at the end of the chapter, he exclaims, he gets beside of himself and says, who can deliver me from this body of death? I'm wretched. But in the same breath, he thanks God 
who gives him the mind to serve God despite the law of sin in his members. Chapter 8, he goes on into a more, more authentic and defined praise and reminds us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit has set us free in Christ. Who shall separate us from his love? We are adopted. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Chapter 9 says that we are, we are chosen by his sovereign will. He is free to choose us because of how good he is, and he chooses us. He calls us. He beckons us to himself. Chapters 10 and 11, the complexities of how Israel is chosen and, and are being redeemed together with the Gentiles. And Paul can't even hold this in. By the end of that chapter, he's exclaiming out of his mouth and writing down all the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how uncertain are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Now we land on because of all this, dear brethren, by the mercies of this great God, be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. Because of all this, I beg you, just do away with this old sin nature. Walk in this newness of life that you have now received. The more we ponder, the more we meditate, the more we consider this great gospel. It is a transformative work. And we arrive at chapter 9 as new creatures. And he's talking about who we are. Not what we can do to additionally please God, but who he has already created us to be. And when we walk in that, we walk in the truth of that. We don't take score and we don't say, oh, yeah, I, I had a good day today and I had a bad day yesterday. We are his. We lay down our lives as living sacrifices in light of his mercy. We're transformed in light of the very same fact. He's not just calling for us to do something. He's pointing to the life-changing fruit of this gospel Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, I implore you, beg you, consider the gospel. Consider all the attributes of God that we just went through over the past few weeks. Worship before him, seek him in prayer, and then look for the fruit. We are being transformed. We are being renewed. We are being empowered to do these very things that scripture is telling us to do. Let's walk in the reality of this new life that we've been given. If we don't have that new life, come running to Jesus. Because that's what he offers us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much just for your grace and your mercy, your truth. This word that you give us. You don't just give us this word as additional instructions to identify our failures. But God, we know that where sin has abounded, grace is that much more abounded. We come to your feet begging you, pleading with you, God, to help us. We come to you thanking you because your son is beautiful and glorious. And the cross was such such a sacrifice, such a sufficient sacrifice for us that we can trust in its work. We pray that as you renew our minds and transform us, God, that you take away worldly affections. You take away the sin instinct to do wrong, God. That you would implore us, God, that even when we do sin, to come running to you for mercy. 
to know that we can go boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy in that time of need. Thank you for this body. Thank you for all hearers, God. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that my words are insufficient to do. Thank you for these things and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.